Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Welcome those who are Cornerstone Online family, as well as those who are here with us today live. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles today, and we're going to go to 1 Timothy. So go with me there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. There is a lot of talk in the last number of months about our economy. It's not Canada alone. What makes this particularly grave is it's around the world. It's a post-pandemic problem. You can't spend like what we did and not pay the piper later. And you add into that worldwide turmoil and you've got some issues going on. I am not prophesying about what is to come. It's only common sense to know that you can't go from a nation of 400 and some billion dollars two and a half years ago to a 1.1 trillion debt today and not have some problems now. You've lost all your margins. Couple that with the times that we live in, situations we face, uh, there's some days ahead. There's some days ahead. And they're not going to be brief. They're not going to be short. They're going to be gradual and they will be difficult. And I think in that, we need to talk about that as a church. There are things that will stiffen what God wants to do in your life and in the body of Christ financially and ways in which he has timelessly from the beginning when he began to particularly when he began to speak to Abraham about the blessings that those principles and they've been added on to throughout scripture they're marvelous to read about but God is serious when it comes to things and our heart the title of my message this morning is from my heart to my hand how do I get a heart that responds in such a way that it releases through the hand and not just stays with the heart. Sometimes we want to just stop at the heart. We talk about the heart. We talk, 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 talk. But it never moves to the hand. Never moves to the hand. So I'm going to, get in, I'm going to be talking about money today. I, a few weeks ago I wasn't. And then I was just feeling we needed to do that. Next week we're going to start into a new series. Uh, following John to the heart of Jesus. He wrote five books. The New Testament. And... You're going to find it interesting. You're going to, it's going to cover everything. Uh, he's, one of my, he's one of my favorite characters of the New Testament. Not John the Baptist, but John the disciple. So I thought I need to start off today with a little heavenly humor. If we can't laugh at some things, then we will only ever cry. So this is heavenly humor. This is actually not a true story. Please bear with me. I found it funny. You may or may not. Let me go with it. A man was walking a California beach. He was deep in prayer. He was a pastor. All of a sudden, he said out loud, Lord, grant me one request. Suddenly, the sky clouded above his head, and a booming voice, the Lord said, Because you have been faithful to me in all your ways, I will grant you this one request. The man said, Build me a bridge to Israel. 
Remember, he's in California. Build me a bridge to Israel so I can drive over and see the Holy Land anytime I want to. The Lord said, your request is very materialistic. Think of the logistics of that kind of undertaking. The supports required to reach the bottom of the Atlantic, the concrete and the steel it would take. I can do it, but it is hard for me to justify your desire for worldly things. No, take a little more time. Think of another request. A request you think would bring honor and glory to me. The man thought about it for a long while. Finally, he said, Lord, I've been pastoring churches for years. And we've all always lived in such financial bondage. People just don't get it when it comes to giving to the Lord what's the Lord's. They can be two-faced when it comes to giving money. They say they serve the Lord with all their heart, yet when the offering plate is passed, they keep their wallets shut and won't give. For once, for once, I'd like everyone in my church to tithe. Yes, yes, that's it. That's my one request. For each and every one of my parishioners to tithe this coming Sunday. After an awkward few minutes, God said, you want two lanes or four lanes on that bridge? <laughs> okay. First Timothy, chapter 6, verse 9. Follow with me. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I want to break this down into three parts because my sermon will be in two parts. I want to talk of the tough issue first. I want to tackle that first. You know, you, I, the expression, the good, the bad. So we're going to start with the bad, and then we're going to go to the good. It comes in this chapter. I want to draw attention to verse 9. Those who want to get rich, those who want to get rich, fall into a trap. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Note that, the love of money. I've always made it this my model. Never love anything that can't love you back. Therefore, you love people. You love God, but you don't love things. So you won't hear me talking about loving things. I don't love what won't love me back. But here it is. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then the next part, some people, here it is, eager for money, eager for money, note that, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a principle I teach here at Cornerstone. Uh, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but it's the, the three P, the three P principle. That God has a way to protect you financially. God has a way to prosper you financially. But he must do it when you are positioned righteously. Let me back that up. I'm not going to spend time on this. But, but we, you can look, search the scriptures. God, prosper, or not prosper, but to um, protect you. 
comes from, he talks about the tithe. The Lord gives us everything. Everything belongs to him. He owns it all. So he says, I, I ask you then, you return the tenth. And I will bless not just the 90, I will protect everything. I will protect. It's called the protector. The devourer will not devour you. That's called protection. The Bible talks of it. The second P, though, is prosperity. And that is above and beyond where the principle of multiplication is the principle of the sowing of the seed. That's the offering. It's above the 10%. And when you give of that, the alms, the offering to the needs around, we'll talk about that a little bit later this morning. But when you give to that, I prosper you because he actually multiplies it. He takes what you give and he multiplies, breast down, shaken together, running over. That's the offering beyond. But here's the thing that we get snagged on. There's a third P in there. It's very important. It's the positioning P. Meaning that if you are not being honest in your finances, the other two don't matter. You need to live blamelessly. You can't accept bribes. You can't accept under the table. You can't extort money. You do that, it's the hole. That's the hole Haggai talks about. The hole that goes right out that hole. Yes, he's still the God who protects. He's still the God who prospers. But you must be positioned so that he can do that. And often we get out of position when we mishandle what we have. Can't just mishandle it and expect a blessing. It just won't happen. So oftentimes when people come and you say, oh, you know, I've been doing this, I've been tithing, I've been, you know, doing all that and it's not happening. I will frequently circle around to let's ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you're out of line? Something's out of place because you're not positioned for the blessing. Once you're positioned for the blessing, you can't stop the blessing from happening. Okay. And it's there I want to talk about something this morning, and it has to do with gambling. I'm meddling this morning. But it has to do with gambling. I'm not talking about hitting the casinos. There's many different ways. Matter of fact, I looked it up. Gambling, from the dictionary, it says the betting or staking of something of value, so you stake something of value, with consciousness of risk and hope of gain on the outcome of a game, a contest, or an uncertain event whose results may be determined by chance or accident. So you take gain, something of value, and you put it down with the hope, an uncertain hope of a chance for it back. So I did some research. The fiscal year 2020 and 2021... OLG, Ontario Lottery and Gaming, land-based gaming, digital gaming, and charitable gaming, lines of business collectively generated in uh, this province $5 billion in total proceeds. Just last April the 4th, just a few months ago, 2022, legalized sports gambling. It was legalized and expected to now generate another $1 billion dollars. The fastest growing gambling is online gambling and it's impossible to get the stats on that. You, we can't track it. Statistics Canada has polled and discovered that gambling has found its way into 95% of the homes across the nation of Canada in one way or the other. 95%. Christian organization called Focus on the Family have a large counseling center they stated, this, this shook me up, they stated that clergy gambling, what's clergy? 
Pastors, ministers, gambling is the number one problem they deal with in their counseling centers. That blew me out of the water. Pastors, number one counseling issue was pastors or clergy gambling. What does the Bible have to talk about? What I want to share is not my opinion because that really doesn't matter. What does God have to say? And you won't actually see the word, at least not unless you get a, a, quite a paraphrased version. You won't see the word gambling in Scripture, but it has a lot to say about money, possessions, and what it means. Remember, we're talking about if I'm not positioned for God to bless. We're coming into difficult days, beloved. This is why this is important. We have to deal with some holes that, that, that will just rob you, will rob you of what God's plan for you in your faith is. If we listen and respond, there's blessing on the other side. There's God, God will work things out in a way that, that you've been praying and believing for and even beyond. There's a number of scriptures, and, and I know I've had some conversations with people over the years regarding this. They say, well, the casting of lots is a biblical principle. The casting of lots, that idea comes from a sheep's knuckle bones, and they function like dice where you throw them down. Lots can be other instruments of use. It can be uh, stones. It can be wood. But it's like a dice, but typically in the Bible, it was sheep's knuckle bones that they would throw down as a lot to determine what to do. And so a question has come back, well, that's gambling. And so the question was, well, is the casting of lots not gambling? And God, we know, sanctioned lots in the Old Testament. We see in the early New Testament, he sanctioned lots. Let's back it up a little bit. The Israelites, the Old Testament, they use lots on occasion to determine the divine will of God. Lots in the Old Testament, again, the early part of the New Testament, they were cast in order to find out from the sovereign Lord which way it's to go because they did not know which way God wants. So they would cast the lot asking God to reveal in the basis of the dice what his will was. We see it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1. Lots were used when, remember, Judas the disciple had betrayed Jesus. He hung himself. They had to pick a 12th disciple. What did they do? They came up with certain key persons. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, 26, they actually cast the lots to determine which disciple. We see them using lots at the foot of the cross of Jesus. The soldiers casting lots for Jesus' garments. But here's what we need to understand. In all the uses of lots in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, at no time was anyone ever putting something at risk. They didn't give up a valuable something to get something. They simply used the means to try to know which way to go, but nothing was given up in the process. You tracking? Nothing was given. The use of those lots were not costing anyone anything, so it wasn't a gambling of the lots. It was a casting of the lots. Proverbs chapter 16, 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now the phrase casting into the lap. Again, they would put it in a garment, they would shake it around, and they would throw it down. Asking the Lord, Lord, let your decision come forth. 
Lots were a way in which God would reveal his providential will. Very much like in the Old Testament, the priest had the Urim and Thummim in which was on the breastplate of the priest. And they would ask, show us the way by using the Urim and Thummim. And in that, there was a deciphering of the will of God. A decision needed to be made to determine the mind of God. And so, Lord revealed it through how these lots fall. It's not so much fate. It wasn't really chance. It wasn't luck. It simply means determining God's will. Now, we have to understand why that was important. Remember, the Holy Spirit had not been given to the people. Remember, they did not have the Word of God. They did not have the Scriptures to turn to. Pretty well any question, I'm going to suggest every question we have in life, you can get guidance from God's Word. They didn't have this. So they were asking a sovereign God, a, prov- a God who was uh, over all things, to be able to determine what is it you're trying to show us. They did not have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not dwell in them. came on certain people at certain times to reveal something, but the Holy Spirit did not dwell because they were vessels that were unholy. Not until Jesus paid the debt could the Holy Spirit live in us. That happened in the resurrection of Christ when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church. So following with this now, they did not know what God's will was. So they would do the best of what they understood, and then there was that element that, God, I need to be guided by you, and they would cast these sheep knuckle bones. So I want to share here today five things regarding Scripture and gambling. The first one is this. Uh, To gamble is to deny the reality of God's sovereignty by affirming the existence of luck or chance. Now remember, gambling is about taking something valuable that's yours in hopes you can get more. Okay, that was, so we've already determined that wasn't the lots of the Old Testament. So, and actually you don't see this used after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. They just began to seek the Holy Spirit's direction. So, number one, to gamble is to deny the reality of God's sovereignty by affirming the existence of luck or chance. Luck is really not a God idea, (laughs) you know. Um, I don't get bent out of shape when somebody says, good luck. Uh, Did you have any luck? That's okay. That's okay. But Scripture repeatedly teaches that God is sovereign over the universe. He alone suspends natural laws. We call it the supernatural. I believe when you and I, when we get to heaven, we're going to realize the laws we lived here that were natural, okay, or were not natural. That the natural laws of God are what we call supernatural laws today. We will live in the supernatural realm. Today they look very supernatural to us. But in the realm of eternity they will be everyday occurrences. And God can suspend them. He is sovereign over the universe. He operates outside the laws of this universe. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. That's not chance. It's not chance. Isaiah 65, 11. Isaiah 65, 11 says, But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain. Now note this. Two things I'm going to show you. As for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls mixed with wine for destiny. Now two things mentioned here. They're not the same. They look like the same. Who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. Spreading a table for fortune 
actually there was, they called it the God of fortune, and there was a God of destiny at the time this was spoken. Two specific idols. The God of the people that the Israelites were up against, two gods, the God of fortune, the God of destiny. Read that again. Who spread a table for fortune and who filled bowls mixed with wine for destiny. Another name for destiny is lady luck, chance. Fortune comes from the Hebrew word gad, which means luck. Destiny comes from the Hebrew word many, M-E-N-I, M-E-N-I, not many, M-E-N-I, and it means bad luck. Gad typically meant good luck. So what was happening here, they would, back to the scripture, who spread a table for good luck and spread a table for bad luck. Who cast to good luck and cast to bad luck. To good chance and bad chance. So what was happening is they were bringing offerings to these gods. The picture bringing offerings to these gods. To good luck and to bad luck. An offering to both. So that good luck would prevail. Now where's God in that? Where's God? They were worshiping this. They were bringing offerings to this. Faith and luck and faith in God are mutually exclusive ideas. That's what he was saying. So back to the text, 65, 11. As for you, forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. Verse 12, God says, I will destine you with the sword. You can't be blessed if you give to those gods because you're not trusting me as your sovereign Lord. So to gamble is to deny the reality of God's sovereignty by affirming an existence of luck or chance. Secondly, gambling is not good stewardship. It's just not good stewardship to what God has given me. Actually, it's not stewardship at all. Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all its contents, the world and those who dwell in it. Let me read that again. The earth is the Lord, all its contents, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything belongs to God. We know that. Everything we have is God's gift to us to invest. The worst possible thing is to throw it at a God called luck. If God has given everything, so he has given me health. I'm able to get up and stand here this morning. God has given me, so I don't give it away recklessly. I am to give what he's given me. For his glory. If he's provided family for me, I'm to give them for his glory. If he's provided the finances, he's provided a home, if he's provided uh, whatever the provisions might be. The picture here is all things, all things in the world, everything belongs to the Lord. And the worst possible thing I could do is to throw it away to Lady Luck. Number three, gambling displaces and demeans the God-given place of work. I've heard people say that the curse, the curse that we had from the garden is to work. But actually, work was given before the curse. They were to work the garden before the curse. Working is not a curse. Now, sometimes it feels like it. But working is actually not a curse. God didn't make us work so that he somehow benefit from a bunch of us being slaves for him. He gave us work because he knows the fallen people need to be preoccupied with something other than temptation. Idle hands, <laughs> have you heard? Yeah. The devil's playground. Work is not a part of the curse. Proverbs 12, 11. He who works his land will have an abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. 
No better illustration of fantasies than gambling. Hoping for something. Fourthly, gambling is driven by the sin of covetousness. Actually, there's two commandments of the great Ten Commandments. The first one I want to talk about is the Tenth Commandment, the sin of covetousness, where it says, thou shalt not covet. Now, it stands in stark contrast to Paul's admonition to Pastor Timothy in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, 7, and 8, where Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, with, when you're content and godly, you have great gain. 2020, a documentary on TV a number of years ago did a series that was called, on, it was on happiness. And what they did is they brought in a bunch of people who, went, who won significant lotteries. And a few years later, it was two years later, if I'm not mistaken, and couple after couple after couple, not everybody, but the vast majority, I think it was over 70% the numbers were, Broken marriages, families had turned into a mess, friends hated them because they wouldn't give them money. And it was a mess. And so the question towards the end of the documentary was, are you happy? Would you do it over again? And one after the other said, no, no, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of evil. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Amen? Does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's driven by the sin of covetousness. That's breaking the 10th commandment. It, now let's go to the 8th commandment, which is my last point here. And this gambling seeks to gain from the loss of others. When you think about it. It violates the Eighth Commandment because it actually steals. It fundamentally violates the command to love your neighbor because a gambler essentially takes from the neighbor. You think about gambling. I take someone else's. I haven't worked for it. I threw it in in hopes to take someone else. Somebody loses. So I don't love my neighbor. I'm taken from my neighbor in order for me to get which breaks the eighth commandment. Love your neighbor, do not steal. So I want to come back to this text again and then continue on. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, let's read it again. For those who want to get rich, beware, 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 fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Listen, it doesn't matter if a government sanctions something. You know a government can sanction things that are not of God. That doesn't matter. You must go back to God's word. What does God's word say about it? And when it comes to this, and, you, and I've heard it said, well, it does a lot of good. Look at all the hospitals that are raised. I want to suggest of the 5 billion plus, 6 billion plus, what probably is another 6 plus in, in uh, uh, computer online stuff, the benefit of that were just given without you feeling you're going to prosper from it then you can enact God's, God's blessings now that will pour down into a generation that now is under a curse. So when you do what God's asked us to do, these places will not diminish, these places will flourish. It's kind of a double-edged sword when it says that, well, it does good. But does that validate, justify the cost of such bad in the midst of it? Versus just do good. We're going to talk about that in a second. Just do good. And watch what God does with the doing good. 
Because he will do abundantly beyond. But the way it is now, it will always be lack. And it will always bring destruction in its path. So let me go back. Verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is a root. It's not the root, but it is a root. And there are many evils that will follow. Some people eager for money have want, they were in the faith, wandered. Note the word wandered. They were in the faith, but their eagerness to get ahead financially pierced them with many griefs. You may know of people like that. But let me go down to verse 17. Let's continue. Command those who are rich. And I'm going to suggest if you live in Canada, you qualify. We are in the top 1% to 2% of the world. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. We're going to see that in these days ahead. But to put their hope in God, who richly, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18. Command them. He didn't ask. He didn't say beg them. Command them. Do good. Everybody say that together. Do good. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. Verse 19. In this way. What? 17 and 18 just said. In this way. They will lay up treasures for themselves, watch this, as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I want verse 19. You want verse 19. Lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming. I want to lay up treasures for what's ahead. Lay up treasures for what's ahead. For the coming age, so that they may take hold of what life is all about. We need to invest in what matters. I just want to close with three keys. And I want to start with an illustration taken from a spiritual, I consider a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father of myself, Pastor Jack Hayford. He had written a book entitled The Keys to Everything. And Jack in that book had uh, written this illustration. He was just too good for me to let go here. It's a humorous illustration. If you know Jack, Jack's probably the humblest guy I've ever known. And uh, so he tells the story. I'm going to read it. He said it was Thanksgiving. Along with other guests and family, my Aunt Margaret had arrived at their house. She was a woman of rather queenly disposition. Aunt Margaret had just grouped the three of the kids together in the corner of the living room, remember it's Thanksgiving, corner of the living room, my brother, my sister, and me, and she made us an offer. Children, it's Thanksgiving, and I want you to tell me everything you can, along a list as you wish, everything for which you feel thankful today. And for every single thing you are able to think of, I'm going to give you 50 cents. Now, Jack goes on. He says, 50 cents during the 1940s was huge. And Aunt Margaret was a well-to-do woman. She could come good on the offer. So there stood little five-year-old Jack Hayford on the brink of eternal wealth. 
He said, my economic senses set my emotional juices pumping at a rate sufficient to inflation. And then he said it happened. I froze. Absolutely couldn't think. I fumbled. I sputtered. I struggled with such a gargantuous possibility. And I managed to come up with, I'm thankful for mom, thankful for dad, thankful for my house, and thankful for my family, and ran out. He said it's a sad commentary on anyone's imagination, regardless of age. Today, he just wishes he could do it all over again. He wishes Aunt, Millie, or Aunt, Aunt Margaret was there. And, and for starters, he said, I would have thanked her for my index finger on my right hand. For the next finger, I would have thanked her for my third finger. I would have thanked her for my pinky. I would have thanked her for my right thumb. Then I would have gone to my left, and I would have thanked her for my left thumb and my next index. And I would have thanked her for marriage finger and the little pinky. Then I would have started on my toes. There's 20 right there. I would have thanked her for my nose, my ears, my hair. He began to go. I would have thanked her for everything. I would have been a fortune. But he stopped at four. Well, when we think of abundance as possibility, there's something to be said about a law within. A law within that has certain key elements. Here they are. One, our human capacity to receive is functional in direct proportion to our capacity to give. And it's hindered in direct proportion to our perceived desperate need to get. Hmm, lot said right there. In other words, we don't give thanks because we're so often preoccupied with getting. This was a problem Jesus was seeking correct when he spoke and he said in Luke 6.38, give, give, starts there, give, and you'll discover it will be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, would be poured into your lap. But give, you start by giving. His invitation into the realm of spirit to heart. Remember, the issue is how do I let my, that flow into my giving? Heart to hand. It flows beyond the lip service to God. It's from the heart, not out of duty. Secondly, learn to give greatly because great living ensues upon great giving. In these days ahead, there's going to be a lot of temptation to go after quick things. There's going to be a lot of temptation to hoard. There's going to be a lot of temptation to say, I can't. But I think there's a tremendous lesson when we grab a hold. Learn to give greatly because great living ensues upon great giving. It applies to virtually every area of life, not just finances. When you think about it, people often don't have friends because they don't give themselves as a good friend. We wait for the friends to show up at our door, but they don't because we don't invest in being a good friend to someone. Oftentimes we seek a pure relationship with someone, but we don't give purity first. So we get poor relationships in return. People don't feel forgiven because they don't give forgiveness. People don't find contentment because they won't accept heavenly provisions instead of what they want to take. Just God's blessing and contentment. We call this the law of reciprocal giving. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We are the ones that determine how God's abundance and life flows to us. I determine the gateway by which God flows in my life. It's not by chance. It's not by hopeful thinking. It's not by striking it lucky. It's not by you know, my methods and methodology. It's when I release and give freely. Freely. 
no strings attached, that I know God looks after me when I give freely. I don't know if you've ever had a key that you had to have cut. You go to wherever it is that cuts keys and you, they put the key in and then they put the model key in that they're going to shape after the original and they give you the key and they grind it off and they send you home. You put it in, it doesn't work. And upon closer examination, I mean, it looks like it should work, but when you examine them carefully, you discover there's one tooth missing. Just one tooth will stop you from that entryway. And likewise, when the little things, it's the small things, when they are not according to God's plan, will not access God's plans and provisions for our lives. Learning to give greatly because great living ensues upon great giving. Key number three, last one. Money translates to life. Remember the first time somebody told me that? Uh, I was surprised I hadn't thought of it earlier. Money translates to life. Money is not life, but it translates to life. Let me explain it this way. Every time you and I deal with money, we are actually handling life. Your money, your wallet, your bank account, the things you have, we're actually handling life. Let me explain it. Every dollar we have, every piece of currency that passes through our hands is in some way directly related to a given moment of someone's life. Because... In the present order of things, in the day we live in, money is given in exchange for a person's time. So when you go to work, if you're paid by the hour, if you're paid a salary, you go to work, you give of your life in exchange for currency. Isn't that correct? My life, my job, what I do, my expertise, my skills, my talent, my just grunting it out, whatever it is, in exchange, I get currency. So that currency that I receive today, that I have today, represents in that way life. Now when I handle money, when I handle things, I'm handling life. You see how that follows? So back in, when, it was, when there was trade, everything was trade, it was a lot simpler to see it. But it's a little bit more difficult. Sometimes we say, well, that's mine. It's my right. No, it's, it's life. When I handle finances, it was exchanged for somebody's life. It was exchanged for my life. And so what I do with it is life, my investment in it. So life and money are integrated. Money translates to life. So when I invest, I translate to life. So now we come back to that text. Um, I don't know if uh, back on the visual, can you go back to 1 Timothy 6, 17 again? I want to read that last verse, verse 19. 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to go right down to the last verse. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life. Note what it says. That's truly life. It's a biblical principle. What often we hear is life and finances and blessings and people who have much. That's why I say command those in the present age. Don't be arrogant and put their hope in wealth. There is a perception that those who are rich somehow are better. They're better people. They've worked somehow harder than those who aren't. But I'm going to suggest that's not God's principle. God's principle, not that he won't bless because I believe he does. But the principle here is that we need to take hold of life that's truly life. It's not based on how much I have. It's based on how much I give away.
And in that, in that's the principle I've invested in life. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.